In what can only be described as a kind providence, we come this morning, find ourselves in our normal course of sermons through Matthew, at a passage perfectly suited for the day, for this Easter Sunday. I invite your attention to Matthew chapter 12. We'll be turning to verse 38. Easter Sunday, we know, is marked by pastel colors and delicious meals and little girls in pretty dresses and sometimes even eggs and bunnies. And there's nothing wrong with any of those, of course. It's wonderful that traditions have grown up around this holiday, just like delightful customs have grown up around our celebration of Christmas. But Easter, like Christmas, is about much more than colors and traditions and delights, even if they involve both chocolate and peanut butter. Uh, There is to Easter a certain set of teeth. There is a deadly seriousness to these, an eternal consequence for everyone. If Jesus Christ, the Savior, is born, and Jesus Christ, the Lord, is risen from the dead, then a response is required from everyone to whom this news comes. As we saw last Sunday, there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. He does not give us that option he doesn't mean to. We, have, we will have to do something with Jesus. Believe and receive or refuse and reject to everlasting effect. Let's pray. Father, Jesus, your Son, has not given us, a, given us more than two options in this matter. And we pray, O God, that we may take the right one. We thank you, O Lord, that uh, we have in this house of worship, in this congregation. And we pray, Father, any stronghold of unbelief may yet be demolished and conquered by the risen, conquering King Jesus. May he take his ground all of our hearts and keep it, having planted his flag there. And now, Father, take the word that you have uh, sent to us, inspired by your Holy Spirit, and cause it to be illuminated by that same Spirit to our hearts. We open them to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've just recently heard Jesus call the Pharisees the offspring of the snake brood of vipers, he has called them, warning them of the judgment to come. They had it coming, of course they did, but naturally it did not sit well with them. This is their next offensive, even if couched in polite, even saccharine words, now launched in league this time with the scribes, the uh, erudite experts of the law of that day along with Jesus' response. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, 
We wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater then Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. How many times has it not happened that a Christian finds himself or herself telling someone else about the gospel? Perhaps a friend telling them about Jesus and, and, and the good news of salvation and eternal life through faith in Him and receives this response or something like it along these lines. If only I could see Jesus do a miracle. You know, if only He would show me a sign, then I would believe. Now, more often than not, this response is disingenuous. You know, it's not really that they desire to see a sign, or even that they would believe if they were given one. It is rather a mask used to cover a refusal to believe, an intransigent unbelief. This was certainly the case with the Pharisees and the, and the scribes. Though this might have been written off as a very typically Jewish sort of thing to do, we Remember, don't we, from our time together in Corinthians, Paul's line about the Jewish propensity to seek signs. In fact, they had been given plenty of signs, signs upon signs, all sorts of proofs that Jesus is the Messiah, the giving of sight to the blind, lame people made to walk, lepers cleansed, the deaf made to hear, even the dead raised. You know, what more did they need? No, no. No, they weren't really looking for a sign. They were trying to set another trap. And once again, they managed to catch only themselves. Jesus refuses at first to give them another sign. The answer is no. But it's not a full stop no, there is also wonderfully a yes built into his answer. 
No, Jesus will not be their circus monkey jumping and performing at their rebellious command, but they will receive a sign to be sure. The sign of the prophet Jonah. All the world has been given this sign. We have been given this sign. All these centuries later, we have been given this sign. Even millennia later, the sign has come to us. And with this sign has come a summons. Both of these ring down through the corridors of time to this very moment, to this very place, the sign and the summons. We might even call them the Easter sign and the Easter summons. Look at them with me, please. First, consider the sign. Now, what is this sign of which Jesus speaks, this sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, as even the smallest members of our congregation can tell you, having heard it from their parents, the prophet Jonah is a prophet who lived some 760 years before Jesus' incarnation, before he was born. He was sent on an errand by God to preach the word of God to the Gentile Ninevites, the inhabitants of the ancient Assyrian capital city of Nineveh. But children, did he want to go? Oh, no. No, Jonah didn't like his divine assignment so well, did he? In fact, he downright rebelled and he hopped a ship going the opposite direction. Well, God hurled a great wind upon the sea, a mighty tempest, so that the ship was about to break into pieces, a storm that was not stilled until the crew hurled Jonah overboard into the sea where a great fish appointed by God gobbled him up. And there in the belly of that fish, Jonah spent how long? Three days and three nights until the fish vomited him out onto dry land. Now, just as an aside, very quickly, many today want to say that the story of Jonah is a myth and nothing more than a myth. Not really true. But the rock on which that lie shatters is Jesus' own treatment of this history as just exactly that. History. True history. Anyway, I know you children, you can... You can finish the story for me, can't you? You know, you know the rest. Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, as God had told him. And there he warns them of God's judgment to come. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, he preaches. And what did the people of Nineveh, those wicked Gentile people, what did they do? They believed. They believed God, and they repented from their sin, and they turned to God. And what did God do? God forgave them, and He saved them, and He did not destroy them. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew this history very, very well, and Jesus knows well that they know it well. So He tells them they will understand the sign of Jonah and how it applies to Him, to Jesus. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus explains, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now don't be thrown off by the math here. Unusual as it may be for us as a manner of speaking, three days and three nights was a Jewish idiom appropriate to a period covering just two nights. We have a similar difficulty, you remember, with the uh, assertion that Jesus rose on the third day when in fact he'd been buried on Friday, Friday afternoon. So we would have called it, we would have called it a day and a half before, but this was a typical way of speaking in, in that period of time and in that place. The point is this, that's the sign. That's the sign for them. The sign of my authenticity, he says, will be my death, burial, and resurrection from the dead in three days. And that's the sign for you too. And for me, for us, dear flock. And for all of you in the hearing of my voice right now. Jesus has lived. He has died was buried in the tomb, and on the third day he rose again victoriously from the grave. These are the historic facts. Oh, unbelievers refuse them, refuse to accept these facts. Of course they do, but that is what they must do with them, refuse facts, because the burden of proof for all of this is not on Jesus, and it's not even on Christians who believe these things to be true and celebrate them every Lord's Day and especially this Easter Day. No, the burden of proof falls on those who refuse to believe that Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. They have to prove that it didn't happen. Well, how, do you, how so, do you ask? Because in order to refuse, in order to deny these facts, one must face the fact that no one in that day who wanted to deny the resurrection could produce a body. Where is the corpse? And they must face the fact that there were over 500 witnesses at once who saw Jesus alive again with their own eyes. Soldiers actually had to be paid to keep their mouths shut about what they witnessed at the tomb that early Sunday morning. Those who refuse the facts of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead must explain how Christianity spread so rapidly and with such force in a culture that was every bit as skeptical, if not more than this one, about the resurrection of the dead. They must explain how a bunch of uh, Jews started proclaiming Jesus as risen from the dead and worshiping Him as God, my Lord and my God. And even more, why they did so even to the point of death, sacrificing their lives, their very lives for this very truth, being hanged, being crucified, being thrown to the beasts, and otherwise tortured to death. They must explain all of these things to refuse the facts. The sign is 
sufficient, more than sufficient to prove who Jesus says he is, our Savior and our Lord. He is risen triumphant from the tomb. Case closed. But with the sign, I say, comes also a summons. It is a summons to believe. We must believe. And we must be followers of Christ or else. Or else what? Or else face the judgment appear in the courtroom of God. And there be witnesses there too, by the way. For these Jewish leaders who refused the Messiah of God, even as he stood right in front of them that day, will be, those witnesses will be, Jesus says, it come to them in two sets. And how it must have infuriated them, infuriated them, those Jewish leaders, those Pharisees and scribes, to hear that both of those parties would be comprised of Gentiles and one of them a woman <laughs> to boot. Remember the sign of Jonah? Well, those Ninevites, those Gentile rebels in blood thirsty until they heard the truth about God and repented and were brought into the kingdom of God. Well, those same Ninevites who believed a reluctant little Jewish prophet from Galilee named Jonah will rise up at the judgment to serve as witnesses against the scribes and Pharisees who refused the prophet from Galilee, Jesus Christ. And they will be joined in their testimony by a Gentile woman, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, Jesus calls her. No doubt Jesus is referring to the Queen of Sheba, who, uh, when she heard about the wisdom of Solomon, made the long and arduous journey from what is now modern-day Yemen all the way to Jerusalem to ask him hard questions. And when she learned just how wise he is, once she had caught her breath, remember she lost her breath in 1 Kings 10, what, what, what did she say? Do you remember? She said, blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. You see, she came into the kingdom of God that day as she witnessed the great wisdom of Israel's King Solomon. And yet right here, standing right in front of the Jewish churchmen of his day was Israel's true king, capital K king, one infinitely greater than Solomon and himself, the wisdom of God as Scripture calls Jesus. And did they believe? Not on your Tintype. They were plotting how to kill him already. At the judgment day, she will rise up and bear witness against them for their unbelief. Jesus, our prophet, greater than Jonah. Jesus, our priest, 
greater than the temple. Jesus, our King, greater than Solomon, has died. More than that, He has risen from the dead. And now He summons everyone, everywhere, to come to Him to find rest. To find rest for their weary souls. For His yoke, He says, is easy. And His burden is light. But know this. Know this. All those to whom He comes and calls, who reject Him and refuse Him like the Jewish leaders did in His day, will have their day in court. And this queen, this queen of Sheba, will take her place in the witness stand. And she will bear witness bear testimony against all who rejected him, whom she gladly sought out and received and praised as the Lord. If you have not yet done so, today is the day for repentance. Today is the day for you to turn to the risen Lord Jesus and say, I turn from my sin now and I trust in you. I believe in you from this day forward and I follow you, my Savior and my Lord, my King. I join the ranks of the uh, the likes of the Ninevites and the Queen of the South, to follow you, my priest, my prophet, my king. Your death, your resurrection, the sign of Jonah is all I need to know that you are the one, you are the Messiah, you are my Savior, you are my salvation. But just one more thing. One mistake to avoid, and it's an easy one to make, especially in the flood of emotion, of Easter emotion that this holiday brings. Do not mistake attempts at straightening out your life, or working very hard to make yourself a better person, or becoming a little more religious. Don't mistake these for the reality of repentance, of repenting and turning to Christ and following Him. Don't make that mistake. That's the point of that little illustration Jesus adds here. A little jarring, isn't it? And that's what makes it so effective. It's not a primer on demon possession that Jesus is giving us in this jarring description of the evil spirit who vacates and then returns with seven friends to the man he previously possessed. No, it is an illustration that Jesus is giving us, an illustration of the Pharisees, both ancient and modern, contemporary to his day and contemporary to ours, people who hear all of this and decide that, well, you know, preacher, what I really need to do, what I really need to do is to improve my personal morals. Now, that's the main thing. Uh, I, I, what I need is a little more religion. What I need is, is a little more church-going, more than Christmas and Easter, apparently. 
Such people are the ones Jesus describes as having worked very, very hard to sweep out their house and to put it all neatly in order. Debbie and I recently had occasion to converse with just such a man. Upon finding out that I am a a minister and that we're celebrating Easter this weekend, he felt compelled to tell us about how good a person he is and, and how many good things he does for other people here in town and, and so forth and, and so on. But alas, no indication that Christ is his Savior, that Christ is his Lord, his only hope. None of what you've just said in Christ alone. That is just about the worst. No, I'd say that is. That, no, it is. <laughs> it is the worst situation in which anyone, in which any of you could place yourself this Easter Sunday or ever. Your house may be neatly swept, but it's an empty shell unoccupied and ready to receive all manner of unclean spirits. Listen, you don't need morality. You don't need religiosity. You don't need to work very, very hard to make yourself a better person today. You need Jesus. And you need the person whom Jesus sends into your heart to occupy and to fill that space, the Holy Spirit. And you need the Father to whom Jesus and the Holy Spirit bring those who love Him and carry those people whose heart they possess. Yes, Easter is a delightful day with its pastels and its pretty outfits and its candy and its feasting, and so it should be. But Easter is also dangerous. It has teeth to those who do not truly repent and fully receive the one whose resurrection from the dead this holiday is all about. Dear flock, I have better hope for you. I have much better hope for you that you find yourselves among the Gentiles like the Ninevites and like the Queen of the South who call him Lord because that is indeed who he is to you. Long ago, Charles Spurgeon put it to his London congregation this way, and with this, I'm done. The standing Witness to the Lord, to our Lord, is his resurrection from the dead. God grant that every one of us believing that unquestionable fact may be so assured of his mission that we may repent and believe the gospel. Amen.